You're listening to TIP. You know, I'm very happy with the collection of assets that I own there. So I think on a risk-adjusted basis, it's kind of a ballast in my portfolio and it's something that I expect to continue to deliver strong results. But as I did hear somewhat recently, as I find new ideas and things that I think are really attractive, it's a place for me to at least look to source capital. On today's episode, I'm joined by Alex Morris. Alex provides high-quality equity research with deep-dive company analysis and complete portfolio transparency through his newsletter, The Science of Hitting. Prior to working on his newsletter full-time, Alex was an analyst for a registered investment advisor for 10 years. During the episode, I chat with Alex about the initial things he looks for when analyzing a company, why paying up for a quality company is acceptable for long-term investors, how return on invested capital plays a role in Alex's investment decisions, why Alex recently added Spotify to his portfolio, how he thinks about Spotify's valuation and their path to profitability, and much more. Alex brings a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to value investing in today's market. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Alex Morris. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I'm joined by Alex Morris. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Well, Alex... I am a huge fan of your work and your writings, and I really admire your strategy of having a highly concentrated portfolio that requires very high levels of conviction. So to get our conversation kicked off, I'd like to ask you to just tell us a little bit about your overall investment approach. You know, the cornerstone of my approach is really based on two key conclusions, I'd say, which is one, I'm an active investor, and then two, I'm a business owner, a long-term business owner. So as you work through the implications of those two key beliefs, I think it ultimately leads you to a portfolio that kind of looks comparable to the portfolios of many of the investors that people who listen to this probably know, like Buffett, Munger, Acri, et cetera. You know, a, a small number of concentrated positions that you're really holding for the long term. And I think that that output also has an impact on the inputs that you look for, you know, the attributes like business quality, management quality strong balance sheet and thoughtful capital allocation that can enable the company to, to survive and thrive throughout the business cycle, you know, things like that. That's a really high level overview. I'm happy to dive into anything you'd like to talk about further, but those are the main things that I think about as I think about constructing my portfolio. You've recently had a piece that discussed this idea of looking at key criteria to analyze a company. And this allows you to just quickly narrow down the universe of investable companies. And you use this idea and talked about how Buffett uses this. He can just look at a company and just quickly say, yeah, this isn't in my circle of competence. It's not something I'm interested in. And you mentioned that it's something you take very seriously too. So what are some of the key things you're looking for when you initially look at a company? Yeah. So the first one is a very easy one that knocks out a lot of potential investments, which is just being able to understand what the business is and really being comfortable with how the economics have evolved over the past 10, 15, 20 years. So good examples are you know, Chipotle, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's a burrito chain that's basically in the United States. Dollar General is another good example, a low-cost rural retailer in the United States. If you plot the numbers for those businesses and think about really the unit economics and what's happening in those underlying businesses, it's very easy to understand what does or does not determine their success over the long run. So that's kind of what I mean when I say understandable. It's not really, you know, for example, Microsoft's been a big position for a long time. I'm not intimately familiar with the technology behind a lot of the things that drive the business, but I think I have a good understanding of what really drives the economics of the business over the long term. So understandability is a really important one as kind of a first filter. And then as I get into the research process, the filter I'm really most focused on is business quality. And you know, business quality and management quality are very tightly tied at the hip. You know, I think there's an approach to investing where you do things like screening and you find stocks that meet certain criteria, which could be quality criteria or valuation criteria. 
For me, I've never really found that particularly helpful, especially on the valuation front. I really think it's most helpful for me to start with this idea of where are the really great businesses, where are the really great managers, and then as the final step, just getting comfortable with the valuation and whether or not the expected IRRs are reasonable. I also wanted to pull in a Charlie Munger quote, who I know you are a huge fan of. And his quote is, if the business earns 6% on capital over 40 years and you hold it for 40 years, you're not going to make much different than a 6% return, even if you originally buy it at a huge discount. Conversely, if a business earns 18% on capital over 20 or 30 years, even if you pay an expensive looking price, you'll end up with a fine result. Now with that, how are you able to balance buying businesses that earn a high return on capital without paying too extraordinary of a price? Well, the short answer is that it's very difficult. You know, and let's stick with Charlie Munger or Berkshire because that's probably a good way to think about it. You know, Coca-Cola is a business that would probably fit in this bucket of willing to own at a high price because it has attractive returns on capital. I think what's probably happened over the past 20 years or so is that the returns on capital remain very strong, but it's harder for them to generate attractive growth because just of the underlying dynamics in the categories that they really compete in and thrive in. So you know, that's basically a long way of saying that it's very, very difficult to make long-term comments about the sustainability of a business and the sustainability of ROIC and growth. At the DJCO meeting, Charlie was basically asked this question as it relates to Costco. And I think his answer was really interesting. He basically said in a roundabout way, for me, Costco fits the definition of that quote. And you know, I think the underlying logic for that belief is I'm going to get these numbers wrong off the top of my head, but you know, they have roughly 600 warehouses in the US, which is a small number relative to you know, most retail concepts. Obviously, it's a different animal, but they have 600 warehouses in the US and a couple hundred outside the US, two or 300. They've shown a proven ability to get that warehouse concept to travel internationally, which is massive as you think about the ability to grow for not the next 5 or 10 years, the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I think he's effectively saying, I think the growth algorithm that they have, call it this 3 to 4% unit growth, you know, low to mid single digit comps, really attractive unit economics, and an ability to return capital to shareholders as they've primarily done with special dividends over the past 10 to 20 years. I think he's effectively saying to you, I realize that you think the headline valuation looks expensive, but I see a path for this business to continue to grow its per share intrinsic value by something north of 10% per year for a very long period of time and with a very high degree of confidence. And anybody can go run the numbers. The multiple going from pulling these numbers out of my head, the multiple going from 40 to 20 in five years is a huge headwind to IRRs. The multiple going from 40 to 20 in 50 years is a much lower headwind to IRRs. So I think, and again, this is incredibly difficult to do, and you have to be very picky in order to find even five or 10 businesses that really pass that test for you. But when you find them, it makes it very difficult to. I think it's an air. I'll be even a little bit more uh, affirmative in this belief. It's an air to look at a business like that and go, well, it trades at a PE of 30, the market's at 20, it's expensive. That's faulty logic, in my opinion, if you're truly a long term investor. Yeah, I really like that. You know, it makes sense that quality businesses are going to be trading at a higher price. And that gives us as long term investors the opportunity because we're giving the company that opportunity to compound over time and, you know, continue to reinvest in the business and grow. And I saw that Markel is a holding of yours, which is a company run by Tom Gaynor. And he is a huge fan of just, you know, not being afraid to pay a little bit up for quality and also has that long term approach. I found it interesting that you hold Markel and Berkshire in your portfolio. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you use return on invested capital to measure the ability of the business to generate returns? And why is that or why not? I do, but it's, you know, I might not use the same label or the same definition of how to calculate it as kind of the standard, you know, textbook definition for thinking about it. I really think about it more in terms of the unit economics. Let's stick with retail because that's a, an easier industry to walk through. I really think about it in terms of the unit economics and especially the incremental unit economics. You know, Buffett made a great point about Kraft Heinz when the investment wasn't working too well. He said something along the lines of, you know, the business generates fantastic returns on capital. 
The problem is we didn't pay the cost of the capital base. We paid the price that the equity traded at. And if there's no incremental investment, you know, the incremental investment you're getting at that base. But if there's no incremental, then you're just getting what you paid relative to what it generates. So I really think about it in that regard. And that's where, again, a company like DG or a company which I own or Chipotle, which I don't own. Let's stick with the one I don't own because that way I can talk more kindly about it. A company like Chipotle, they've very effectively shown that they can spend, let's call it $800,000 to put another box in a strip mall somewhere. And at run rate, that business can generate, call it roughly $200,000 in operating income. So obviously, you know, you don't need to run very detailed calculations to the decimal point to recognize that that's a pretty attractive return on investment. And they've shown an ability to increase the store base fairly significantly for a long period of time. And now management's guiding to something like 8 to 10% annualized unit growth, which is significant. That's very significant growth. I think it's important to understand what the output is on stuff like ROIC, ROA, ROE, whatever it may be, you know, margins, etc. But it's also important to think about what does the incremental look like and how realistic is a company's going to get there and what are the potential shortfalls in terms of them making it there? Because that's really what you're paying for in a lot of ways is what's going to happen in the future. And if the legacy business has a great returns on capital, that's fine. But if the future doesn't look like that, then the stock is not going to be a strong performer over a long period of time. I really like how you're digging into the details and looking at the actual unit economics rather than just looking at the high level ROIC that comes up just on a stock screener. Are there any flaws for someone that just wants to look at the return on invested capital, maybe in a case like Chipotle or just your standard run-of-the-mill type business? Are there any flaws that investors should be mindful of? Absolutely. And that's the problem with using these things too bluntly. You know, Retail is an industry where the investment, given the nature of leases as opposed to always owning the real estate and the box... The investment can be something closer to just fixtures and working capital and the like. So the investment can be very small relative to the economics of what that box generates. The problem, of course, is if you go out and overbuild your chain by 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 stores and the economics on those incremental boxes are not attractive, you're left with a very difficult situation to navigate because you've signed leases. You know, It's a good example of how the headline numbers can look very, very good until they don't. You know, on the other side of a coin, you can look at something like Microsoft or really big tech generally. If you look at the return on assets as an example, it's a bit of a flawed number because if there's 150 billion in net cash sitting on the balance sheet that they don't really need, it's kind of they don't need that to cover any real business needs. You have a significantly deflated return on assets when the core business is something much stronger than what it appears to be. And that's really important in terms of really building conviction and owning something for the long term. It's returning to dollar general because I think it's a really good example. It's understanding why the unit economics have been so good, particularly in an industry that's very competitive. And I think when you dig in, what you start to realize on that name specifically is that, yes, it's a retailer and it's a very well-run retailer. But there's a unique feature of their strategy that enables them to effectively have a very strong business operating in markets where competitors can't just go into these lot of, a lot of these places and just, just build a one-off store because it doesn't fit into a broader system. So they have a differentiated approach to their business and their strategic vision that, in my mind, gives them a sustainable competitive advantage. So for me, that's a lot more important for me than understanding whether you know headline ROIC is, is higher or lower by 200 basis points. How do you think about the objective of your stock portfolio? Do you set out to achieve a certain rate of return over a long time horizon? Or is your goal to beat the market? Or how do you think about that idea? My goal is definitely to outperform over the long term. Otherwise, you know, being an active investor is... While I still enjoy it, it probably wouldn't be the best use of my time. Maybe I could find something better to do in life. So I'm certainly hoping to outperform over a long period of time. As I think through overall portfolio construction process, there's a couple layers. So first, you know, start at the asset allocation level. I've personally decided in this choice between structural and tactical, and we can dig into that if you'd like. I've decided personally that I think a structural allocation makes sense for me. It really removes the market timing component of the game. 
And in my prior life at an RIA, I've seen people try to play this market timing game many times and it rarely works out well. So I've effectively taken that decision out of the process. I'm structurally allocated to equities at something in the 90 to 100% range, which I think makes sense given my age, my expectation for future savings, etc. For those not familiar, could you dig into the difference between a structural versus a tactical allocation? So a structural allocation, as I see it, is something like you sit down and you essentially come together with a financial plan, something based on your ability and willingness to bear risk over a long period of time. Generally speaking, and obviously this is not financial advice, but if you're very young, you have a very long time horizon, you're going to save for a long period of time, that would indicate that you have the ability to have a higher allocation to equities versus someone who's, say, 65 years old and planning on drawing on their portfolio and they can't accept certain levels of volatility effectively. So that would be setting that kind of either pinpoint number or range. So let's say you went through that thought process like I have and you say, okay, 90 to 100% makes sense for me as a, a structural equity allocation at this point in time in my life. The tactical approach is to then go, okay, well, 90 to 100 makes sense, but I'm going to try to pinpoint times where I think stocks are an even better use of funds or an even worse use of funds. And I'm going to expand that range from 90 to 100 out to 70 to 120 if I want to get levered long. Or some people go even crazier than that and say, I'll go to 50% cash when stocks are really expensive. And when I think they're really attractive, I'm willing to go 150% levered long. I view it simply as introducing a component of market timing to the game. And I've seen many people do it. And it's not only that it doesn't appear to work very well, the decisions tend to be marginal. And I don't think even when... If you had the ability to be right over a long period of time, I don't think the bets are usually big enough for them to even have a meaningful impact on the long-term performance. So again, it just becomes a time suck that takes away from the primary goal in my mind, which is finding really high quality businesses and then looking across the universe of those stocks to find the 10 or 15 that are at a price where you can justify holding them in the portfolio. So that's kind of how I think about the structural versus tactical decision. And then from there, so if I say, okay, I'm at 90 to 100, I have to put these dollars to work. I effectively think about it from there on opportunity costs, not really an absolute hurdle rate. So when I build models, financial models, I typically include an absolute hurdle rate, which gives you some estimate of fair value or intrinsic value. But that output is something of a fallacy because at the end of the day, I'm just judging that price to fair value you know, equation. I'm just judging that relative to the rest of my opportunity set. So if everything's north of 100, I'm not going to say, okay, I'm not owning stocks. For me, I just have to choose the best amongst what is available to me. So long story short, structural allocation within the equity bucket allocations based on opportunity cost. And then, yeah, the idea is to own very roughly 10 to 15 names for a long period of time. And the goal, hopefully, is to, to do better than the market performance over the long run. The past few years have been very interesting. It's Mr. Market has been a tough competitor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Your largest holding is Berkshire. And a lot of people say that Berkshire isn't likely to outperform the market, not because Buffett has lost his touch or anything. It's just due to the size that Berkshire has gotten to. It's much easier to grow a billion dollars in capital than it is to grow hundreds of billions in capital. So I'm curious to hear why Berkshire is your largest holding. That's definitely a fair point. The days of compounding book value or intrinsic value at 20% a year are long past. You know, the trade-off to that return part of the equation is the risk side of the equation. And it's an incredibly well-capitalized business. The largest enterprises, whether it's Berkshire Hathaway Energy or BNSF or something like the equity position in Apple, I view all of those as very high-quality differentiated businesses that should be able to, to generate adequate rates of return over a long period of time. I think BH Energy is a really interesting one, which Buffett dug into in this year's in this year's letter a little bit more than he has in the past. And they also put out a slide deck that's on Berkshire's, I guess you would call it their IR page. They're very bad IR page. <laughs> you can see a deck that BH Energy put together, I think it was late last year, because they have to do these things every once in a while for debt holders. I presume that's the reason why. But it, it really lays out nicely how unique BH Energy is and how well of a job it's done serving all of the stakeholders that it services at the end of the day, shareholders included. The short answer is you're right. The days of generating very attractive returns are gone. At the same time, I think Buffett is waiting for hopefully his last opportunity to do something really big. And you know, I'm very happy with the collection of assets that I own there. So I think on a risk-adjusted basis, it's kind of a ballast in my portfolio and it's something that I expect to continue to deliver strong results. But as I did hear somewhat recently, as I find new ideas and things that I think are really attractive, it's a place for me to at least look to source capital from, especially during a period like this where the market's done quite poorly and it's managed to hold up fairly well. So obviously on a relative basis, its attractiveness has probably diminished slightly. But this is also, considering this is a millennial podcast, this is probably also a point worth making. You know, I've been doing this for over 10 years now, but my portfolio even today still has, and I'm happy with the positions for the reasons that I own them, but it still reflects some of the decisions I made five, 10 years ago. And when I was, when I was a younger investor and still learning the ropes, I kind of naturally moved towards some of the mega cap things I could really understand well where there was some safety. I mean, this is my life savings. It's not, you know, this isn't play money. So I was very focused on the return side of the equation, but also on the risk side of the equation, ensuring I was making intelligent bets. So a lot of it is really just progressing and evolving as an investor over time. And what makes sense for me today, you know, something like Spotify or Netflix, two names that I've bought relatively recently. They're names that I would have looked at five or 10 years ago, and I wouldn't have had the experience or the knowledge to, to even get to a conclusion really on the investment thesis or to can come to the decision that I ultimately did. So some of it's just continuing to learn and still being, you know, I'm, I'm 32, I'm still relatively young. And this is a decades long game, if we're lucky, of continued learning and evolution. There's definitely a component of that in it as well. Yeah, I can understand how, you know, an experienced investor like you can be more comfortable holding something like Berkshire rather than an S&P 500 index. And I also noticed that in your portfolio you included the first time you purchased the positions in Berkshire and Microsoft were positions you first added in 2011. Are those positions that grew to be the largest positions in your portfolio? Or is it just a factor of these are your highest convictions and you've continued to add to them over time? I'm curious how those sort of played out over time. 
Yeah, so it's a combination of the two. And I've, as part of the service, I show returns going as far back as I have them for my broker, which is Fidelity, which for some reason they have not been able to figure out how to give me my 10 year returns. They only have them back five years, which is weird because I've been with them for well over a decade. But in another way, I also think it's good that that's the case because it wouldn't give a false indication of what has happened historically. So it's a good chance for me to explain. When I started investing in 07, 08, 09, 2010, had a very small amount of money. I was still in college. So when these were very large positions at that point in time, it's not really representative of what my portfolio looks like today, right? So that track record would be somewhat misleading. And I don't know if it'd be misleading to the good side or the bad side. I would assume... I mean, I own Berkshire and Microsoft and they've both done fairly well. So it'd probably be misleading to the good side, but it's not really representative of what a true investment portfolio looks like. You know what I mean? But yeah, so those positions were very large as a percentage of the portfolio early on as I started working in the industry and started saving more money and adding to my portfolio. They naturally became smaller, but I've also added to them at points in times. For example, recently when I rolled a 401k into my IRA, I walked through with subscribers exactly how I thought about allocating those funds to the portfolio. And kind of the deeper point of your question in terms of how the position size today reflects decisions made in the past. You know, you see a lot, especially when you're working with individual clients in the RIA world, of people letting that tax consequence get in the way of the investment decisions that they'd want to make if they started with a fresh piece of paper. If they had 100% cash today, what they would buy and what size the position would be versus what they bring in from a legacy holding. I work pretty hard to ensure that the impact of that on my portfolio is very small. I want to be able to look at my portfolio on any given day and say, this is a rough approximation of the weightings that I would have if I was starting with a brand new pile of cash. Obviously, the tax consequences are there. They're non-existent. But I try hard to make sure that does not overly influence uh, the investment decisions that I make. I saw this week that Berkshire purchased another insurer, Allegheny. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. They purchased them for $11.6 billion, which is Buffett's biggest purchase since 2016. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on Buffett's recent deal. Well, the short answer is I have not had enough time to look closely at. But even that answer, I think, tells you something about the way that I invest and the way I think about these businesses. And I think the lesson probably is I'm purposely looking to partner with people and in businesses that I don't feel the need to watch their decision-making like a hawk. I fully trust Warren Buffett or Sachin Adela, Todd Bassos at DG. I fully trust these people in terms of the operations of the enterprise, the capital allocation of the enterprise. You know, and there's a certain component of trust but verify that comes with all of this. But I'm not the kind of person who sits there and wants to nitpick each individual decision, especially when $11 billion is a lot and on one scale, but relative to Berkshire size, it's, you know, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, they should have only paid eight, you know, something like that. So, I try to make sure that I don't nitpick the decision making too much. And I accept the fact that managers are going to make errors. But what I am tough on is ensuring that management is transparent and honest with shareholders and that our interests in our line, things like that. You know, speaking of Buffett, it's kind of an interesting example of some of the things he did early in his career. When he bought Washington Post, and I believe he did the same at Cap Cities. When he bought Washington Post, I think he wrote a letter to, to Kay Graham where he effectively said, the voting shares that I have from this position, I'm basically giving you control of that. You voted as you see fit because I'm investing in this company because I trust you. And that was a very large position. And I think the commitment was for something like you know for the next five years or something along those lines. So I'm sure I got the specifics of how that worked screwed up. But that way of thinking is very similarly to how I kind of approach it. I am fully entrusting these people across all facets of being a leadership team. Yeah, I really like that. You know, It's kind of the approach you're obviously judging the business, but you're putting a huge emphasis on the management and that you're hiring them to take care of your money. For example, you're hiring Warren Buffett to manage a portion of your capital for you because you know he's the one doing the day-to-day operations and you don't want to have to not sleep well at night wondering, okay, is he going to make the right decision? You can just look at his track record and you know, understand, does he have that high level of ethics and does he treat the shareholders' money like his own and such? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think you know, we spoke about Markel before. I think it's an interesting example where some of their decision-making throughout the pandemic they sold a fairly significant amount of their equity portfolio. Part of the thinking was they need that capital to help fund growth and insurance premiums. 
you know, it's a situation where I've trusted management for a long time and I continue to trust management, but it's an example where I think they've done less than a complete job in terms of communicating how that has worked and whether or not the decision was right or wrong. And again, it's not even whether the decision was right or wrong really isn't my main focus. It's obviously important if you make a number of mistakes, but my concern is whether or not they're really being honest with me and whether I can continue to trust them and I continue to think that their thought process is sound. You know, it's a small ding and they've built up a lot of reputational equity with me, I guess you could call it. So it's not something that is a make or break situation, at least at this point in time. But that's one example of how, as I continue to follow the companies that I own or the companies that I watch, something I take notice of. Those are the things to me that really stand out. I often thought back to BNY Mellon, a company that in the shareholder letter, I think it was in 2011 or 2012, they had a massive loss in the business from something that at least from my understanding, was kind of non-core and maybe shouldn't have happened. It seemed like a pretty clear mistake. And in the shareholder letter, the CEO didn't mention it as far as I remember. Instead, there was a paragraph about how employees had donated, You know, I think it was $50,000 following a hurricane and I believe it was Haiti. But it was just one of those things where it's an important example of that needs to be clearly addressed. And it's an opportunity to share with your shareholders to help them understand why the decision was even made. And again, does that really impact intrinsic value of the enterprise? The answer is probably no. But for me, it's knowing that you have one chance to communicate with me a year and you didn't take the chance to talk about something that seems at least notable from the outside. I'm just constantly thinking about trust and ability to execute in terms of those kind of developments. You mentioned that a recent new position of yours is Spotify. This one... I'm personally really curious about, you know, our podcast is on Spotify and I'm a daily user myself and they seem to be pretty well positioned against their competitors. So I'm curious what your investment thesis is on this company as it seems to a bit different than many of your other holdings in terms of where it's at in its life cycle. That is a fair point. My thesis effectively rests on a few things. The most notable one is their market leadership position. They don't give this number consistently, but they gave a statistic a few years ago. You can see the user base, obviously, but they gave a stat on engagement that suggested their average user was much more engaged than that of their than that of their competitors. And to me, as I thought about that, it really reminded me of how I would think about, you know, in hindsight, if someone had told me in 2013, 2014, 2015, what are the key metrics on Netflix that lead you to believe it's going to be a winner long term? I would think it's outsized user base and a more engaged user base would have been two very important metrics for me to get my arms around. That's one thing, the market leadership position. The other is a thoughtful long-term strategic plan. I think they've done a good job over the past 5 to 10 years of taking what was really a music business to now becoming more of an audio business. And that can have meaningful impacts on the P&L long-term. And then I think it's a really effective and focused management team, which is, you know, it's not the same as some of their competitors who are the big tech companies are running around and doing dozens of things at, at any given time. And I don't know how much time Andy Jassy at Amazon or Tim Cook at Apple really spends thinking about their music strategy and how it fits into their long-term strategic goals. But I know Daniel Leck at Spotify spends basically all of his time thinking about that. For me, that's an important point of differentiation. And you know, you can look at the results that Spotify has delivered over the past 5 to 10 years where they started from a position that is much, much weaker than where they sit today. And I'd argue that they outperformed those big tech companies over that period by a pretty wide margin. And if they continue to execute on, on the vision that they've laid out, I would expect that to continue over the next 5 to 10 years. Recently, they've had substantial subscriber growth after sort of a lackluster early 2021. Does the negative net income line concern you at all? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on their profitability going forward. Yeah, in the, in the short term, it really doesn't bother me much. You know, again, I just spoke about Netflix a second ago. I think you need to really think about with these types of businesses what happens as they get to higher positions in terms of scale and, and what that means for the steady state unit economics. Those two companies are certainly not perfect comps for a number of important reasons, but I think the journey that they're on is somewhat similar. So, you know, they each require really effective execution and a thoughtful vision about how to turn their leadership in terms of the subscriber base into a sustainable and highly profitable business. So that's going to take many, many years, but I'm confident that 
you know, Netflix is already well on that journey. And I think people look closely, they can see what's happening. I mean, as simply as just look at the EBIT margin progression over the past five years or look at the FCF margin progression, you're, you're clearly seeing improvements in the margin profile. Spotify is still earlier on that journey, but I think it'll ultimately have a similar trajectory. Could you talk a little bit about your valuation process for Spotify? These companies that aren't yet churning out these free cash flows, I always have a hard time figuring out, okay, is today's price fair price to pay or should I wait for it to come back a little bit? How do you think about the valuation of a company like Spotify? Yeah. So anytime I think about looking at the future, I always kind of start with what's happened in the past and try to understand You know, if I was starting 5 years ago, what led to the results over the past 5 years. So in Spotify, one really important development over that period has been the improvement in gross margins. Gross margins are up you know, north of 1,000 basis points over the past 5 years. So it's understanding what got them there and then thinking about how that can continue for the years to come. You know, important addition to that point is it won't be a straight line. And you know, honestly, as a long-term investor, there's scenarios where you shouldn't expect that it should be a straight line or shouldn't want it to be a straight line. You want management to you know, aggressively invest when they see good opportunities to solidify and expand their market position. So I think that's part of what's going on right now. And you know, the response by the market has been lackluster. And management probably should take some blame for that too, because it's really important to communicate that you know, in a way that you're not disclosing competitive information, but in a way that helps your investors and your shareholders to clearly understand the decisions that you're making. Now, that's just an important starting point as I think about it. As I think about the valuation over the next 5 to 10 years, I'm just really focused on how those unit economics are going to evolve. So again, you've seen the gross margin improvement over a period like the last 5 years. You know, management's laid out their own kind of estimates of what the long-term margin profile should look like. I think as you do the work to kind of to understand how they got there, I think it's logical, but it requires them to continue to execute in a meaningful way and to continue to grow the subscriber base. You know, the subscriber base has doubled in the past three years or north of 400 million MAUs. They think there's a path to a billion and over time. And I think the current trajectory suggests that that's not a crazy idea. So you can start playing around with some numbers to see how that works. You know, I, I think about it as I wrote back in April 2021, I got to a number that's roughly at four to five billion in EBIT, you know, call it the 2025 to 2030 time frame. So then you need to look at the stock price and think about what's a reasonable multiple in regards to that, you know, level of steady state income or what I'd view as steady state income and a kind of a crude valuation tool that I use as part of that, if I'm thinking out 5 to 10 years, is throwing something like a 10x multiple on the high end, just because I think that's a level where as you get to those out years, even assuming some reasonable equity rates of return, you have a multiple that's in the call it 20x range at that point in time. You know, If this business becomes what I think it can become and the ensuing impact on the financials that will come with that, I think 20 times will probably look like a pretty reasonable multiple. So, you know, it's nothing too scientific, but it's just thinking about, hey, how do I get find a reasonable starting point on something that has a long way to go on this journey to having attractive economics? You know, in the short term, it can be really tough. I don't know if you remember, but I can certainly remember five, six, seven years ago, people going crazy like, how the hell is Netflix worth? I can't remember the numbers now. Let's say $30 billion or $50 billion. I mean, how's that anywhere close to reasonable? And the answer ultimately was you had to have the ability to see how the business could scale over time, how they could change the business profile a bit in order to get some fixed costs in place. You also needed to see that some of their competitors would continue to delay on the transitions that they clearly needed to make. So that was also helpful. But I think it's really helpful to think about kind of case studies like that and to understand how these things can evolve in a certain way. And maybe another way to say that is too... There's a lot of people who run around saying like, well, this stock ABC is clearly overvalued. And they, in a lot of cases, they haven't really done deep work, I don't think. They just kind of look at some of the headline metrics and valuation stuff that we talked about previously. And the short answer really is Mr. Market is rarely that stupid. There's a lot of people who can see things and say, hey, you know, yeah, 30 billion is a lot today relative to Netflix's current economics. But I see a path for them to have 200, 300, 500 million subs. I see a path for continued improvement in ARPUs. I see a path for the cost structure to become more fixed costs in nature. 
And the people who did that work and saw it early have been very handsomely rewarded. You know, we'll see if, if Spotify can live up to that vision. It's certainly a component of it that's higher risk than something like a Dollar General, where the business model is very well established. The growth opportunities are also fairly well established. But the returns you're going to make on Dollar General are going to be capped at, if you're lucky, you'll get 15% a year, maybe. If Spotify truly executes for a long period of time, you'll see something that's quite a bit higher than that, in my estimation. Yeah, I like how you're looking at what happened with Netflix and comparing them to Spotify, as it seems like Spotify is a similar business that's earlier in their business cycle, and they're both hyper-focused on their industries and also going against the big tech heavy hitters such as Amazon, Apple, and Google. Understanding Spotify's competitive position against these big tech companies, especially Apple Music, I think is going to be really important. And relating to the valuation on Netflix, I remember taking a look at them when I was just getting started. And of course, I was looking at the high-level metrics like the price-to-earnings ratio and telling myself, heck, I'm never going to pay a PE of 300. That's just ridiculous. Who would want to do that? But now I know I shouldn't have put so much focus on the price-to-earnings when looking at a business like Netflix. Yeah. And I probably did the same exact thing. I don't remember... Well, I only shorted one stock in my career and it was Salesforce. And I got very lucky that the stock went down like 5 or 10% like within a week and I covered. And it's probably up 5x since then. I remember writing an article on Guru Focus saying like, this valuation makes absolutely no sense. And the person who was wrong was me. As a younger investor, especially as you start building up some experience and you see examples like this, Maybe you'll never be the person who invests in them because they're a little bit too far out on the risk spectrum for you. But it's still important to really understand how those stories played out. You know, Netflix for me is really a per- I wrote about this a lot, or I thought about this a lot because I recently wrote up Peloton, which is where Barry McCarthy, the former CFO at Netflix and at Spotify, coincidentally enough, I really thought about what he lived through when he was at Netflix in the 2000s. And, you know, Netflix. Even during the period where they were in the DVD business, they faced very significant competition from a resurging blockbuster during a period of time. And they actually took the pricing on the DVD product from, I think it was $19.99, and they cut the price to like $13.99 or $14.99. So obviously, a, a massive change in the ARPU for a business with a lot of fixed costs in terms of the distribution of DVDs and the like. So they lived through that. Then they also lived through the transition to streaming. When they first did it, it was kind of laughed off, as Jeff Bukas famously said, you compare them to the Albanian army or, you know, Les Moonves, who used to be a CEO at CBS. I I saw a quote yesterday. He basically said, like, we want Netflix to thrive. That's great for us. It was a quote from 2011. A decade later, I'm not sure Viacom CBS shareholders agree with that sentiment, but it's a great company to do a case study on, both from just from a business perspective and a management perspective, but also from a, a stock perspective to understand how, as they started to cement themselves, there's people who still would basically be bearish on it today after having been after having been wrong for a decade. I'm confident enough to say that they've been wrong. I hope they would admit as much. So as an investor, you should look at those situations because someday it may be you and try to understand, you know, what were the things that happened that that could have been a signal that you're on the wrong side of this bet. You know, some clear ones would be, for example, as I mentioned earlier, the the massive user base and the significant growth that was experiencing. A clearly better product than what was offered for entertainment programming through linear TV. A much more attractive price point than linear TV. You know, third-party data that suggests the engagement, you know, through Nielsen and others, suggests the engagement among those users is very high. A proven ability to take price over many years in markets like you can. You know, all these little things that should give you pause. And so, anyways, yeah, it's a great case study. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, 
sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. You also wrote an article outlining a few investments that ended up being mistakes. And I respect you for you know being open about some of these mistakes and sharing with others what you learned. In the article, you mentioned JCPenney, IBM, and Kraft Heinz, two of which have been holdings of Mr. Buffett at Berkshire. Buffett no longer holds IBM, but is still holding Kraft Heinz. What were some of your biggest takeaways from these investment mistakes? Yeah. I mean, it's probably important to start with the framing. I, I put this out as one of the first... I think it was... You know, I put three articles out when I launched a service, essentially. This was one of the three. The other two was kind of about me and who I am as an investor. And then another one was kind of a complete portfolio review. And I thought it was really important to have this as part of one of the first handful of articles because it, it really frames kind of... Well, one, that it, it gets across the point that transparency is a massively important part of me as I think about this service and what subscribers should expect from me. But it also speaks to the evolution I've made as an investor and the learnings I've had from my most notable investing failures. So, you know, as I kind of say in that article, I think one really big takeaway on each of those companies is that even at the time of my investment, it had already become somewhat apparent that they were losing standing with their customers relative to emerging competitors. You know, in the case of JCPenney, you could even say things like e-commerce, but you don't even have to be that recent to find a problem. They had issues in terms of even companies just like Walmart and Target going back you know, 10 plus years, that they were losing mind share and market share amongst the consumer base. IBM is a bit of a different one because I think even to this day, you know, like a decade later, I still don't entirely understand what they do. But you can tell from the financials that they were definitely losing standing relative to... you know We didn't know what AWS numbers looked like at that time, but you could have looked at Microsoft or other players to see that IBM was in somewhat of a difficult position. So I think that losing standing with customers was a big red flag that I basically completely overlooked, partly because I let valuation drive the decision-making process. You know, Another major component of it, as you mentioned, was in the case of IBM and Kraft Heinz, Berkshire's involvement definitely played a role. In the case of IBM, it was interesting. I can remember being on CNBC and basically talking about how it impacts the decision-making at somewhere like BNSF. So it was less just tailing him into the investment and more of, hey, he really understands how big enterprises think about managing their IT. I think it's reasonable to tail him in that regard of the thesis. But subsequently, I guess that was not correct. So that was part of the problem. On Kraft Heinz... I had followed Heinz closely prior to Kraft Heinz merger. 
And something I recognized fairly early on that I was just way too late to act on was the merger took what was a pretty attractive condiments business from Heinz that had dominant market share and in my mind, probably pretty good pricing power. And it merged it with a company that sold lunch meats and cheeses and things like that where it was clear they were getting picked off on both ends from private label and then the kind of products you see at Costco that have a higher end feel to them or products like you see at Whole Foods you know, on that end and then Trader Joe's and Aldi and the like on kind of the private label side. It was clear there that their competitive position was weakened and that the pricing power would basically be non-existent or it would, it would be very tough to improve their competitive standing. And when you looked at the mix between those two, the condiments business was such a small part of the overall enterprise. And I can almost remember seeing that the first time they had investor presentation on the business. And I let that just slip past me. And that was a massive mistake in terms of the subsequent investment. You know, on JCPenney, it's kind of similar to the first one. I think I let Bill Ackman put out one of his famous you know, 300 slide decks. And I let myself fall in love too much with his thesis. And I relied a little bit too much on the recent financial results that JCPenney had reported in the run-up to the financial crisis, which probably had a pretty nice macro a tailwind in those numbers. And I let myself believe that that would be kind of where they would return to when, again, even at that time, it was probably pretty clear that that was more of an aberration than a place they'd ever get back to given how the customer preferences were evolving. You know, in all three of those cases, there's a combination of just some lazy thinking and, and relying too much on the input of others. And there was also a little bit too much of something that I think I had more as a young investor that I hopefully don't have as much today, which is a little bit too much overconfidence and a willingness to say, when a stock goes down, I don't care. I'm right. The market's inefficient. That value investor belief, which is very important to have and understand, but as Seth Klarman puts it so well, it's this idea of balance and conviction and humility. You know, there were markers along the way that suggested I was probably wrong, that I was just too slow or too stubborn to accept. I'm happy that each of those three are somewhat in the distant past and not too recent. We'll see in the current portfolio whether I'm finding any new failures to add to the list. Yeah, it's good to make those mistakes early and learn from them and put your money in a better place that starts compounding capital. And you know, just from my perspective, I think looking at the revenue line just as like a high level indicator, what does the revenue line look like? Is the brand and customer base growing over time or is it declining? Whether it's a business I'm looking to potentially purchase or just a business I'm analyzing, or maybe it's a business that's already in my portfolio, like has the revenue line started to flatline or start to decline that, you know, I think that's something important to look at. And Another thing for me, I think, is just looking at where the future is heading. And not to pick on you, but JCPenney as an example is obviously being disrupted in my eyes by you know companies like Amazon. And regardless of how cheap it might look, thinking where's the future going is something I like to think about in my investment process too. No, definitely. And that's a you know two points on that. On the first one. Mark Mahaney, a very famous tech analyst who's made a number of great calls over the past, you know, call it 20 years, wrote a book recently called Nothing But Net. You pretty well summarize the entire book and what you just said. I mean, he, the book is revenue growth. That is what he's focused on. You know, revenue growth, as you noted in the second point, usually points to something in terms of changes in the industry, changes in customer preferences, etc. And his kind of belief is, at least as I interpreted it, is something along the lines of what Netflix has kind of shown, which is with scale, brings opportunities to do things that can take what might look like a tough business on one hand, it can evolve over time to become a much more effective business. So he's effectively uh, followed that approach. And I think there's a lot of merit to thinking that way. Maybe one other point on that, just because and, and it gets to what you said, you know, what you said about JCPenney is so spot on. I think sometimes we have a tendency as investors to say, okay, well, yeah, I grasp that. Where's the price where it still makes sense to buy? You know, you can look at Bruce Berkowitz and not to pick on him, but he had an investment thesis on Sears from a large number down to something closer to zero that there was support for the thesis because of the value of the real estate. And it was a good example of what a value trap can look like. And it's a good example of the risk that you pose to yourself when you start playing this game of business quality is part of the equation, but I'm willing to let price play as much of a driver in the investment decision-making process. And there's people who that works very well for. And 
I just think that's a different style of investing. And I think that works less well if you're going to be someone who's very concentrated and very focused on the long term. The business quality has to be the driver. You can't let the tail like the dog. Yeah, that is definitely one thing I respect about your investment process. I saw in one of your recent writings, you mentioned one of your friends, Bill Brewster, was bugging you about you know special situation type investment. And while you might recognize that it's a really good deal or it might be a really good value, you stick to your guns on what your investment process is. And you know there might be a hundred different ways to make money through investing. And you stick with kind of your expertise and what your approach is. And you're playing your game and you'll let others play whatever game that they want to play. Yeah. I mean, again, and as I said in there, that's even just in the world of publicly traded stocks that there's a million people finding ways to play the game that's effective. That is not how I play. There's also the rest of the world where people are doing tons of things with private businesses and real estate, et cetera. You know, I just think for me, if I really drill down on kind of my core opportunity set, I think it can be successful long term. And as I also try to allude to in the post, there's a real value that comes from cumulative learning and and following, even if it's 50 or 100 companies very closely for a long period of time. When you go through those rough patches where uh, someone who looks at the name for an hour a year, their reaction to those difficult periods might be different than yours because you go, hey, wait a second. You know, I saw some version of this five years ago. And I remember how that played out and how the concerns proved to be short-sighted. So I think there's a lot of value that comes from cumulative knowledge, both with businesses and with the people running them. Again, since I'm just such a big fan of your work and your investment approach, I got to ask, is there any investment-related required reading that you have that helps you develop as an investor? And it can be something that you reread maybe every year or just some sort of publication or book that you know helps you develop. Okay. Well, let's start with the easy ones first. Obviously, the, the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters are a must. I really think... And again, this is you know, it's more for a, more of a novice investor. It's obviously for more of a retail audience. But I've always found great value in the Peter Lynch books. I think it's a very business-first approach, a way of thinking about investing. And, and again, just that simple idea of, hey, you, know, you work at the mall or you work in retail and you're out here trying to buy pharmaceutical stocks. You should stick to the areas that you really have knowledge in. And not even so much for differentiated insight necessarily, just for the ability to actually have conviction in something and the ability to stick with it for the long term. Because if you own any stock for the long term, you're going to live through periods where it's down you know, 20 30 50%. So if you don't stick through those periods, it's all a moot point. So I think the Peter Lynch books are well worth reading. John Hempton of Bronte Capital has done a handful of posts that are fantastic. When to Average Down is a must-read. or It's either When to Average Down, Losers Average Losers, or both. Those are fantastic posts. The Art of Not Selling, a blog post by Ocri Capital, is another fantastic read. It'll, for a certain type of value investor, it might make their head explode when they say something like, valuation does not play any role in our sell decision-making process. Some people's heads will explode when they read that. And then my pushback to them would be go look at Ocri's portfolio and look at their track record and think about what they're doing. It's a slightly different variation of the game from what most people are trying to do. But I think they've got the decades long track record to show that there's a lot of merit in the approach that they've chosen. So I'd go read those things. I like a lot of business books. I think the Spotify play, even if you're not interested in investing in the company, is a very interesting story of how this company, this small company from Sweden, was able to negotiate with the record labels, these massive record labels, was able to navigate you know, artist boycotts at times, how they've managed to compete with the Apples and the Amazons of the world. I think that's a really interesting story. Yeah, I guess it's a good starting point. Yeah, I'll be sure to link those in the show notes. I'm probably going to order the Spotify play right after this meeting. Before we close out the episode, Alex, where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So if you go to the the scienceofhitting.com is just where my sub stack's at. And just for anybody who doesn't know, I I worked in... I'm sure you're going to mention this probably in the introduction, but I worked in the RIA industry for about a decade. I left in April 2021 to launch a TSOH investment research service, which is essentially all the work that I did as an equity analyst now made available to subscribers. So it's, you know, it's deep dives on companies, it's updates on things that I currently own or watch, it's investment philosophy discussions, stuff like the tactical versus structural asset allocation. And then anytime I make changes in my portfolio, I give prior to I give disclosure the day before I do so with a clear explanation for why I'm doing it and the change in the portfolio weightings, basically. So I publish that every Monday and every other Thursday. 
So you can find that at thescienceofhitting.com. And then on Twitter at TSOH underscore investing, as Clay knows, I just throw up a bunch of random charts and <laughs> random quotes from things. And people ask, why are you tweeting this article from 1997? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? And it's just a place where I like to show, or like just throw up interesting charts or old articles and things that I find interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks, Alex. You know, if anyone's interested in learning more about his work, you know, on Substack, they let you read a lot of his articles for free. So you don't even have to just subscribe to check out some of the things he's working on. So, you know, if anyone wants to learn more, I highly recommend checking that out. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Clay. I had a great time. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.